Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malkin those of his household? As we near the end of this series on kingdom power from Matthew 8 to Dan, we find ourselves in difficult territory. We're dealing here with the topic of persecution. And though it may often seem to us like persecution is something that someone else in the world is experiencing, Jesus teaches us that it's actually part of the normal Christian life. Now, of course, there are degrees of persecution, and parts of the church face it more intensely than others do. In my early 30s, I took a long boat ride with a friend up a river in an Asian country. Like Abraham, we didn't exactly know where we were going, and for some reason, we got off the boat in a small town, and we walked the dusty streets. We were surprised to see a small old building with a cross on top. We opened the door. We saw an elderly lady sitting in in a chair, and she was surrounded by a couple of younger people. They welcomed us in. And we found out that the lady was 93 years old and that we were in the church that she and her husband had built in the 1940s. After they built the church, a revolution had broken out in the country. Religious gatherings were banned, and their church was shut down. They began meeting with other believers quietly in their homes, And then a more severe revolution came, and this time she and her husband were separated, taken to different camps for re-education. They never saw each other again. He was tortured and died, and she spent 20 years separated from all family and friends. This elderly saint was nearly deaf and only had strength to speak in a quiet whisper. But as she told us her story, every so often she would cry out with a loud and emotional, Thank you, Father. (laughs) Through the pain and suffering, she had never stopped believing that her life was always and only in the hands of a faithful God. In the late 70s, she was released from the camp, and by that time in her 80s, she marched back into town and demanded the keys for her church. She started a kindergarten to reach out. She recruited a young pastor and began preaching the gospel there again. 
This was the first time I'd met a follower of Jesus who had been severely persecuted for the gospel. In her case, it was state persecution. But there are other kinds as well. Families may persecute family members or companies their employees. Through this elderly woman, I learned that people can kill the body, but not the soul. The joy and determination of a persecuted saint is truly a beautiful and mysterious thing. The words of Martin Luther, another persecuted saint, written over four centuries earlier, prove true. Let good and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus promised his church that there would be persecution, and he's not ceased to make good on that promise for 2,000 years. According to the website of Open Doors in the last year, over 340 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, were arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. None of this has come as any surprise to the Lord Jesus, who predicted this would be the experience of his church in the world. In our text today, a passage about explicitly promises persecution, we're going to see something about the sender, the sent ones, and the cross that they all bear. First, the sender. He knows what he's doing. As Jesus sends his followers on their mission, he makes clear to them that persecution and pain will be part of the normal Christian life. Peter would later write to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This is clearly in Jesus' mind when he gives his church their mission. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In this first sentence of verse 16, let's consider three words, I, you, and sheep. First, the passage begins with the words, Behold, I. Jesus said, I am sending. We're always to remind ourselves that Jesus is doing the sending. When my situation is deplorable, the people around me all seem to hate me, it's Jesus who has sent me. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus sends his people to care for the lost sheep, to make disciples, and he even sends us into the fire. Next, think about the word you. This word is plural. If we were in Texas, it would be translated as y'all. The you is not only for that group of disciples at that time, it's for all disciples at all times. This is not just for the risk-taking missionaries or those who live in extreme danger. The you who are being sent is me and us and them. We are one body. The church in all of its global diversity and beauty is the body of Christ. If the church in one part of the world is persecuted, we all feel the pain like the body feels a wounded arm. The intense persecution that some experience is like a prophetic voice to the rest of the church, that this is what it truly means to follow Jesus. The third word is sheep. Jesus is sending us as sheep. (laughs) If you've been following Jesus in this part of Matthew's gospel, you may have noticed that he's switched the metaphor here, or more accurately, he's reapplied the metaphor. At the end of chapter 9, he saw the crowds as sheep, 
because they were harassed and helpless, beaten up by life. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he sends and empowers his disciples to care for these lost sheep, chapter 10, verse 6. But now as Jesus expands on what we should expect on our mission, he says that it's actually we who are the sheep. And we aren't sheep who are grazing peacefully in a green field behind a safe fence. We are sheep who find ourselves surrounded by wolves. Sheep are among the most vulnerable of all animals because they really don't have a defense mechanism. Dogs bite and cats scratch. Horses kick and elephants stomp. Even mice and rats can escape through tiny openings in the wall. But what can sheep do? They're easy game for wolves. And even an an entire herd of sheep can't do anything to fight off a wolf. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he send his people into situations where it's almost inevitable that they would be hurt? The way of the kingdom of heaven comes into the world through death. There's no other way. Jesus did not send us as wolves who can, who can aggressively pick off easier prey and expand our territory. The persecuted church reminds the entire church that the kingdom grows and the church is built only through death. There's a famous line from Tertullian in the early days of the church, and he said these words, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But it isn't just physical death. The persecuted church has made tremendous sacrifices for the gospel, and they remind us that death is truly the way of life in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus described himself as the seed that would be planted in the ground. The entire focus of his life was to die a sacrificial death, and he calls us to this very same way of being, dying daily in thousands of ways. We'll return to this idea a little bit later. But though the sheep is completely vulnerable and has no defense mechanism, there's one secret weapon that a sheep possesses, a shepherd. A shepherd who's personally watching over every sheep and determining what is best for each one. Jesus sends us as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he also says, I'm with you always. The sheep are never separated from the shepherd. In danger, he's always with us. So even if he sends us into the fire, he says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Secondly, look at the sent ones, verses 16 to 20. We will know what to do. For this time of unexpected turmoil, a scary time of being hurt and hated by people simply for our faith, Jesus gives us some practical exhortations. He tells us, his sent ones, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are sheep, yes, but there's a, a couple of other creatures that we're, try to, we're, we're to try to be like. During any kind of persecution, we need to be wise and innocent. First, we need wisdom to be able to discern the opponents. Beware of men, Jesus said. These men are willing to turn us into criminals, beat us, and say that we're enemies of the state. In many places in the world and at different times, Christians have been asked to compromise with the state in order to avoid persecution. In the 1950s, a pastor named Wang Mingdao urged his brothers and sisters to not compromise. He wrote these words, The one who faithfully preaches the word of God cannot but expect to meet opposition in the form of malicious slander and abuse. When he was brought to court, During the first round, there was no guilty verdict, but he knew it was coming. 
And he continued to write articles. He continued to encourage his fellow believers. He wrote these words, We're ready to pay any price to preserve the Word of God. Don't give way. Don't compromise. His last sermon was on August 7, 1954. It was taken from the Scripture, The Son of Man is given into the hands of sinners. On that same day, Wang Mingdao and his wife and 18 younger Christians were tied with ropes and taken to prison. He was sentenced for 15 years for the crime of resistance to the government. We, the church, need to be wise as serpents as we discern the tactics of men. During his initial confinement under intense interrogation, Wang Mingdao gave in to his tormentors. He signed a confession that he had done wrong and was subsequently released. Shortly after, though, he realized what he had done, and he said repeatedly, I am Peter, I am Judas. He returned to the authorities. He stuck by his original words and was taken again to prison. He was finally released from prison in 1980. Jesus tells us that we need to be wise as serpents and also as innocent as doves. The innocence is for our defense before accusers. Don't worry about what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, he says. In other words, don't bother lawyering up. Our innocence before the accusers is always our greatest asset in the court of heaven, where the cases are truly being tried. In one of the earliest stories of the first church, Peter and John stood before a court because they had healed a lame man and then proclaimed Jesus. The accusers were astonished, it says in Acts, because Peter and John were uneducated and common men. The accusers, Luke writes, recognized that they had been with Jesus. That same innocence that Pilate recognized in Jesus is what the judges see in Jesus' followers. To their accusers, Peter said and John said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Christians on trial for their faith are simply giving witness to the resurrected Jesus, the person who has invaded our lives with, the rule, with his rule of peace, joy, and hope. So we are not entering into debates about political systems. We're not decrying tyranny, and we're not advocating democracy. We're simply testifying to the kingdom of which we are part and the king who we believe rules over every kingdom in the world. Finally, verses 21 to 25, Jesus shapes our expectations. Always expect to bear the cross. In this final part of the passage, we see things going from bad to worse. What Jesus is doing for us here, we the sent ones, called to proclaim the kingdom in the world, is shaping our expectations. The persecution becomes intensely personal and painful. As brothers turn on brothers, fathers give up their own children, and even children turn on their parents. He says to us, you will be hated by all for my namesake. And then he gives us a practical strategy for how to deal with persecution. And the strategy is simple. <laughs> Run. <laughs> when they persecute you in one town, flee to another. There's actually two biblical strategies in dealing with persecution. One is to stand there and face it or even walk towards it. We see Jesus walking towards Jerusalem, knowing that a trial, a beating, and death awaited him there. We see the Apostle Paul doing the same thing, even when others tried to talk him out of it. But the primary biblical response to persecution is to flee, if at all possible. In Acts, the first Christians did that. And as they fled, they carried the message of the gospel, the life of Christ, with them. 
and the church grew. I just need to give one word of explanation on verse 23, where it says, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This sentence seems a little out of place, but actually this entire commissioning sermon goes beyond the current context of that first group of disciples being sent, and it's meant for the church that's always commissioned. It it refers to, I think, the failure of the Jewish towns to repent and to recognize their Messiah something that continues to this day. So we continue to look for the restoration of the lost sheep of Israel. The key message, once again, of this final paragraph is, however, that we are called to death. Family betrayal, the loss of reputation, being hated, and even death, these are things that mark us, the ones being sent by Jesus. It's enough, Jesus said, for a disciple to be like his teacher. Our goal in all of life is to become like Jesus, including becoming like him in his suffering. The Apostle Paul put it this way, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All these things that are said in the last paragraph are really summed up in the simple invitation of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. The persecuted church around the world offers this constant and loud message to the body of Christ. We are people who are called to death. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But it's through the burial of that grain of wheat, the constant choice to die for the glory of my Lord Jesus and for the promise of new life, it's through that burial that new life will be born. The gospel story, the story that we live in, has this enduring principle. Death is the way to life. One of the ironies of the persecuted church is that it also tends to be the fastest-growing church. In the Iranian Revolution of 1979, the strong Islamic regime outlawed evangelism, banned Bibles, kicked out missionaries, and several pastors were killed. At that time, it was estimated that there were around 500 Christians from Muslim background. People thought that the small church wouldn't be able to withstand the pressure, that it would just fade away and become extinct. Well, in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians forever than, than ever. Today, followers of Christ in Iran number hundreds of thousands, some suggest more than a million. Operation World has the fastest, says that Iran has the fastest-growing evangelical church in the world. The second fastest-growing is Iran's neighbor to the east, Afghanistan, many of them being reached by Iranian Christians. We're blessed to have in our church a group of Iranian Christians, and one of them, uh, Sister Kiana, uh, has actually fled persecution in that country, has found life here in Canada, and is serving other Iranians and people from Afghanistan. So we've asked Kiana to share a little bit about her experience. So, Kiana? Hello, everyone. My name is Kiana. I was raised and born in Iran in a very religious family. When I was nine, I went to church with my mom, and I became a Christian. In Iran, it is a crime to convert from Islam to Christianity or any other religion. And I was a criminal at age nine. Can you believe that? As I grew up, I got really passionate about sharing Christ, and that got me into trouble. Because I would share about Christ wherever I would go to people that I knew around me. 
And uh, they started tapping me because by then, a lot of people knew that I was Christian because I was trying to share Christ with a lot of people. And they would listen to my phone calls and they would know where I go, what I do. We don't have Bible school in Iran. And the way that you can educate yourself is uh, through underground Bible schools. And uh, a lot of the times they would collect a handful of people in Iran uh, from different churches and they send them to a neighboring country. They would get trainings there and come back with resources and they could disciple other people. I was in one of these uh, trips, and when I, when we came back, we had like a lot of books and resources with us. One of our teammates got captured, and through that, they knew all of us. And after that, they captured all of us, and they arrested us. At the beginning, it was just talking to us and trying to collect a little bit of information. And that's where I knew they know everything. They knew the color of my clothes in my closet. They knew everything. And that shook me so much because they knew my private conversations with my friends on phone that no one else knew about it. And they had spies in our church because I saw a couple of familiar faces when I went for interrogation that they were actually one of the staff at their facility, that they would come to church every week and be one of our sisters at church. And that was like... So unexpected. Very shortly after that, they send a, a letter to our church that everyone who comes to church have to write their name and their social uh, insurance number down. That brought our numbers down from 300 to like 150, something like that. A couple months later, they send another letter to us with, with a soldier from the government that uh, you have to write down all of your information, address, and everything related to you because from now on, whoever does not have their name on this, not on this paper, they cannot come to church. So you will check your name off. And that significantly dropped our numbers down to uh, 90, something like that. During that time, it was about like a span of six months that they kept taking me for interrogation and that turned into torture. And uh, day by day, they took humanly right away from me. They were like, uh, you have to convert back to Islam and you have to go to church and spy for us. And I was like, of course, I cannot do that. So they came to my university in front of all of my classmates. They took me away from the class. And uh, my mom didn't know where I was. Nobody knew where I was. And they uh, gave me a warning that if I continue going to church, they would literally stop my rights from studying and going to work and having a bank account and basically all the human rights. That's where I told them that, you know, my, my life and the kingdom and the plan is just very small. You can do anything to take that away. And I think that, that made them really angry. And they made me to sign this um, paper that I confessed that I would not convert back to Islam under any circumstances. And I accept all the consequences, including my own death and hanging. Uh, after that, they sent a letter to my boss. Uh, if you do not fire this person, we will shut down the whole company. And I was partnering with my friends, already started our own company that I had to step away from it because that was under danger. And then I got blacklisted that I could not study in any private or public 
institution. That was when my pastor started talking to me about my options of leaving the country. I was very young. I was very passionate. I was like, no, I'm not going to leave the country. There's no way I will leave the country. Because if I leave the country, if everyone who gets persecuted leaves the country, then who is going to share Christ? And I thought that... Uh, I was the one who has to do this, but God had a bigger plan. I received a letter to my door (laughs) that said, come this day to this address for your hanging, and your family and friends can come to watch you. (laughs) That was ridiculous. That was when my mom was like, I can't can't allow this to continue, and you have to leave the country. I started praying and fasting and asking God for uh, his plan for me, and at the same time, uh, miraculously, I got a ticket because my cousin was working in an agency that she could get a ticket for me. And then I left the country before they blocked my passport in a matter of hours. And um, after that, I was in Turkey as a refugee for two years, and then I got sent to Vancouver, Canada, and now I'm here today. (laughs) Praise God that through all of this journey, he kept me safe, and he had a bigger plan. Now, even though all the doors are closed in Iran, Iran is fastest growing church in the world, and this is God's plan. I pray that my story was encouragement to each one of you. In our country, we have lots of books and seminars on how to make our churches grow. God knows how to protect and how to grow His church. And from the persecuted first church in the book of Acts to our brothers and sisters suffering around the world, God is again at work bringing life through death. Death is the way to life. This holds true at every level as we carry our crosses throughout life. Each time I say no to my anger when I nail my anger to the cross rather than express it, I give life to those around me. Each time I hold my tongue when I nail my words to the cross, it leads to life. Each time I choose to forgive someone instead of harboring bitterness, I again crucify my right to be right. I bring life to the world. The Apostle Paul said about himself, I die daily. We who are practicing the way of the cross, the way of death, in all parts of life are partners with the persecuted church. And as we practice bearing the cross every day, at home, at work, on the roads, we'll be developing the cross-bearing muscles we need for when the really heavy lifting of persecution is required. Jesus said, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. Maybe we don't always stop to think just how scandalous the cross really is. That God would become a human being, and then he'd humble himself to such a point that people would mock him, spit on him, beat him, drive long spikes into his hands and feet, and hoist him up to die in front of anyone who cared to watch. But from that one act, from that one little seed planted in Palestine's soil 2,000 years ago, would sprout a living vineyard that spreads throughout the world. God has reconciled all things to himself. Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross, the deaths of our brothers and sisters around the world, and our own small deaths as we daily bear our crosses. Remind us that we have only one boast, and may we never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. Let's pray. 
Our God, we thank you for the call that you have on our lives. And thank you for this great irony that through the sacrifices of our lives in so many ways, you bring life to us and to others around us. Thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who are walking through fires today, very literal, real fires. We ask that you would bless them and sustain them with the faith and energy and hope that they need as they walk through pain so that more life can come into this world and the glorious and great kingdom that you have come to establish among us, through us, and for us. To you be the honor and glory, great King of kings. In your name we pray. Amen. Rather than have reflection questions this week, we're going to take a little bit of time as we close today just to pray for the persecuted church around the world. And you'll see cycling through the screen seven different prayers. Each one will last for about 20 seconds or so. So I invite you just to join together if you have people around you or by yourself. Join together in offering these prayers to God for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution today.